So I wrote on the board or on the uh, slide here, created in his image, right? This phrase you might recognize from the Bible, right? This idea of humankind being created specifically as like little imitations, little copies of, of God. Um, yeah, there's an interesting historical trend here, though, that I want to draw your attention to. So the oldest known depictions of, of Jesus Christ come from Rome. So what's worth pointing out there is they don't come from the Holy Land. Um, I'm not saying that there were no depictions of Jesus near his sort of home turf, but the oldest ones that survived are from the decorations inside of churches, um, catacombs, villas, and the like. Uh, and what I would point out to you is the Roman depictions of Jesus, he looks like a good Roman boy, which is to say, clean shaven, no mustache, no beard, dark hair, toga. Doesn't look that different from similar depictions of Apollo. The main difference is Jesus is usually not shown naked, where images of Roman gods very often are just standing there in the buff. Jesus at least has a toga on. I don't think I have to remind you that this is not the image of Jesus most of us grow up seeing. Now, I'd also point out that most Roman religious art is very closely related to the pre-Christian art. So like depictions of Christian scenes are done in the same style and manner as those of pre-Christian scenes. The only thing that's changing is the story that's being told. So instead of the story of the trials of Her Hercules, Heracles, we have the miracles of Jesus. Instead of the story of, um, I don't know, the, the life of Dionysus, instead we'll have the virgin birth and crucifixion of Jesus. So it's similarly kind of mythological content, And there's a lot of it, right? This, it's not just a handful of things that survive. There's all these sort of different media. When I say media, I mean the, the method of making these works of art. It could be paint on a wall, mosaics made of millions of tiny little colored stones. This is carved ivory. Part of the reason they survive so well. So the, the truism I want you to remember from this class is we might be made in God's image, sure, but 100% we make God in our image. Religious art never tells you what the religious figure looks like, it tells you what the artist looks like throughout time. Which is why what Jesus looks like changes from age to age and place to place, because all it's ever really doing is telling me what the person drawing the picture looks like. Because religious art is not historical, it's devotional. 
right? It's a, it's a form of worship. It's not focused on this sort of uh, attention to historical detail. And it can't be because that would be almost profaning the sacred. That would be taking the divine and, and assuming that it's just like the everyday. It isn't only true about religious art. I should make this clear. All devotional art, particularly in places where we see some sort of cult of personality. Like I think the most famous examples would be statues of Lenin and Stalin in the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union is a very, very large place, was a large place, full of a large diversity of peoples and cultures and nationalities, so that the statues of Lenin that are found in the Far East, Lenin looks very different than he looks the statues we find in Moscow. The creators tended to make Lenin look more like themselves. So it's not just about Jesus or somehow Christians are unable to be truthful in their depictions. This is what I want you to understand. Is we, we tend to make God in our own image. All of these are depictions of Jesus. None of them has... Like, none of them are the product of getting in a time machine and finding out what the guy looked like. None of them. Time machines aren't a thing. People who tell me this is the product of science, sure, why not? This is the product of people saying, what do people in Palestine look like today? And do we assume that that has not changed in 2,000 years? We should not assume that. I don't really care. The problem is people assuming they know what any historical person looked like. And if you're using religious art to figure this out, again, it's not only Jesus, okay? All religious or devotional art takes on this trend, right? If I want to look at depictions of the Buddha, look very different depending on which country I'm looking at. They're devotional, they're not historical. So the next time you get in a fight with someone over what Jesus looked like, that is not a winnable fight. We don't know, we can't really know. And the main reason is the only thing that survives from this time is incomplete evidence. Bones, statues, but not, not representative. This idea that there is a historically accurate depiction of Jesus that's possible. It shouldn't matter, for one thing, right? That's the whole point of devotional art. All of these are depictions of Jesus. All of them speak to someone, at least the person who made it. So when I write here the last days of the temple, is it clear what temple I'm talking about. Maybe yes, maybe no, depending on who you are. The temple I'm talking about here is the Temple of Solomon, right? The temple that makes Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The temple ordered to be built by God so that the Hebrews can talk to him. 
In a certain mindset, one could argue that no Hebrew slash Jewish person has been able to really talk to God since the temple came down because the laws of Moses make it very clear that is the only place that true worship and honor can be given to God because that's the only place you can do a sacrifice. A sacrifice as in, you know, killing of animals, offering up their burnt remains to the deity. There hasn't been a temple since the first century. The reason I tell you this is it is impossible to understand the importance of Christianity in the first century without understanding what it represented after the destruction of the temple. Christianity doesn't really make sense in the presence of the temple. It's sort of like a replacement religion, if you will. How can you be faithful to the God of Jacob and the God of Israel if there is no temple? The homeland of, of Jesus, called the Christ, the Anointed One of God, is a newly conquered Roman province. Now, in a modern sense, you could say that makes Jesus a, a citizen of the Roman Empire, but citizenship in Rome was a very sticky category. The rights of citizenship were given to very few people. Mostly people who had some connection to a family in Rome or who belonged to the, uh, the small townships outside of Rome called the Latins. Needless to say, if you're in the Holy Land, unlikely you're going to fit into those categories. So, roughly 60 years before the birth of Christ, Rome had invaded, conquered Jerusalem, put a puppet on the throne, their own king, loyal to them, who then named a new high priest. And this is how Rome ruled most of its provinces. They didn't really want to have direct rule because they understood that the local people would fight against it. You want to find some local person who's willing to work with you. But by the time of around the birth of Christ, those local rulers were so hated and so feared by the local people of what we call the Holy Land now, Rome basically said, enough with this, and they sent in their own governor. So there's still a king, there's still a high priest, but the rule of the area is in direct Roman hands from someone who is a citizen of Rome, someone who is coming from the center of power. This is the painting from the 1470s, okay? This is not what the Temple of Solomon looked like. We don't really know what the Temple of Solomon looked like, but this is this understanding of, of this kind of initial desecration, this initial conquest of Jerusalem. It was kind of a big deal. This is the lifetime, if you will, of the first Christians following Jesus. It is a religion of the oppressed. 
It is a religion of the recently conquered. It is the religion of the colonized. It is not a religion of power. It is not a religion of independence. And in this regard, I would say it's, this is what it has in common with Judaism, which in many ways is also a religion of the oppressed, a religion of the colonized. Why is Rome here at all? Because they are very concerned about the growing Parthian Empire. The Holy Land is sort of caught in between military campaigns coming from central Rome against the Parthians. The poor Armenians are stuck in the middle, so they maintain independence much longer. Already you look at the years, right? We've moved beyond the life of this person called Jesus. Because the, the short matter of it is, there isn't a whole lot of historical evidence that a historical person named Jesus existed. I'm, I'm not saying he didn't. I'm just saying, if we're looking at records that survive from the 30s, none of them mention someone named Jesus. But there's so little that survives from that period that's not really proof of anything. What we do know is, within 30 years or so of the death of this man, the Holy Land begins a wholesale civil war trying to throw off Roman rule. And in response to this insurrection, the Roman Empire invades their own province, right? They're invading their own province and they say, okay, we've tried to play nice, now we're going to play hard. And they tear down the temple. They tear it down brick by brick. There's nothing left and it has never been rebuilt. The destruction of the temple, when people talk about like, oh, you know, we should resettle the Holy Land, we should rebuild the temple. They're talking about rebuilding something destroyed by the Roman Empire. And that effectively ends the revolt. Because the faithful people, call them the Hebrews or the Jews or the Israelites, they scatter to the four winds. It is from this point that the modern religion that we recognize as Judaism comes into being. Because from then until now, there have been no sacrifices. When people talk about, you know, oh, how neat it would be if they rebuilt the temple. I don't know if you're realizing the, the amount of animal death you are talking about. One of the things that the ancient sources are very clear on is the temple smelled awful. Because it was a, a slaughterhouse. That's, that's what it was taken up with. The constant killing of animals, great and small. And I'll remind you, that's at a time when the, the world population of Hebrews was maybe 200 to 500,000. Every single one of them is supposed to go to Jerusalem every year if they can. Now imagine today when there are millions and all of them are supposed to be sacrificed. Well, there will be no room in the temple It'll be like every square foot will have to be dedicated to the slaughter of different sized animals. And that all sounds fun maybe, but 
The point is that the Jewish rites as described in the Old Testament require the existence of a temple. What do you do in the absence of a temple? We invent this thing called the synagogue. Right? This is the Greek word for gathering place. We decide now that the new leader will be called a rabbi, just the word for teacher. There are no more priests. How can you have a priest without a temple? The priest's job is to, to sacrifice, to, to actually kill the animal in the right way, offer the prayers up to God. I should make this clear to you. If the temple were to be rebuilt, there is a lot of debate over what exactly the priests are supposed to do. Because most of those documents are gone. What exactly are they supposed to wear? Exactly what words are they supposed to say? This is a, a religion, in a certain way, of talking that has been dead for 2,000 years, replaced by a different one. I would say replaced by two different ones. One we call Judaism and one we call Christianity. Because Christianity, its main body of believers in that first century are Jewish people without a temple. In many respects, what we understand as the first generation of Christians are these wandering, homeless Israelites who have no way to talk to God. And it's at this point that Hebrew begins its steady decline, becoming essentially a dead language. Yes, it is a living language today. That is a totally different story. It is reborn, recreated. It is not the same thing as ancient Hebrew, no matter how many people in Israel think it is. It's not. It's a story for the second half of this class, if, or if, for a religious history class. The point being that Hebrew as a living language spoken by the Israelite or Hebrew people is replaced almost entirely by Greek at first. So, the remnants of the temple, right? It is as it has been since the Roman Empire. All that's left is the wall that's built into the side of this hill. That's why this wasn't torn down, because it's basically a retaining wall. <clears throat> the temple was over here, right? From here over to where these trees were, and it has not been there for 2,000 years. Again, the Roman Empire, for them, this is, this is a W, right? They chalk this up in the wind column. These lowly people thought they could fight against the Roman Empire, and boy, were they wrong. The victory over the Jews is not something that the, the Romans are shy about. This is a major victory for them. Like, look, this is what we can do. We can wipe out entire peoples, entire religions. So if we talk about what Christianity means in this context, you begin to understand, oh, well, you don't need a temple. That's great. Actually, the, uh, the gospel reading this week was the uh, wherever two or three are gathered, there I am in their midst. Yeah, that's kind of a big deal in a post-temple world. It doesn't matter where you are. There's no place. There's no Jerusalem. You can go anywhere. There is no holy city in that, in that physical sense. There's a new Jerusalem that's going to be built sometime, maybe after the end of the world. Oftentimes you will see in a, like a, a history textbook, even like an AP history textbook, this sort of like, why did Christianity spread? What's wrong with this question is, 
During the Roman Empire, every religion that was around was spread. Religions that you've never heard of became massively popular in the first, let's call it, first three centuries of what we call AD, the first three centuries of the Common Era. Christianity also spread, but it was not alone. These other religions, one of them we've talked about before, Zoroastrianism, but also Manichaeism, and let's call it the Roman religion, if you want to call paganism its own thing, all of them were very successful at spreading to new converts in the first three centuries of the Common Era. A better question, why did the others all die out? Because you'll have people saying, oh, Christianity spread because it was just, it was a better religion, right? It, it offered a better story. It offered salvation. It offered a sense of justice. All religions do this, guys. There's nothing specific to Christianity in like, you know, giving people a good time or a feeling of oneness or whatever you want to call it. The reason Christianity survives is because of Roman law, right? In the fourth century, the first thing Rome does is make Christianity legal. Great, awesome, end the persecution. The, almost, the second thing they do immediately after is outlaw all other religions. This is the colossal joke, is Christianity has absorbed this idea of, we used to be persecuted. Yeah, not really, not in the sense that you're, you know, you may have heard. What's definitely true, and we have way more evidence of, Christians did a hell of a lot of persecuting themselves. By the fourth and fifth centuries, it is punishable by death to not be Christian. Once the Roman Empire converts to Christianity, it is wholesale warfare on Zoroastrianism, Manichaeism, and especially paganism. Those religions are essentially wiped out. Do you see what I mean when I say, asking why did Christianity spread, why is that a misleading question? All the religions spread. Now, people have also mentioned this, and this is worth going into some detail about, right? This idea that infanticide, the exposure of infants, is one of the more interesting and difficult things to read about in the ancient texts. Most of the ancient empires, not just the Romans, you can talk about the Sumerians and the Babylonians, many practiced the exposure of infants, call it an earlier form of birth control. And of course, abortions are also happening, not like medical modern ones, but many women know that if you drink certain teas or eat certain herbs, you can reverse a pregnancy. Or if you want to call about, call it murdering an unborn child, fine. The point being that many forms of birth control were available even up to the point of giving birth, where this is the child our family cannot afford, We'll get rid of it. Now, before you think that these people are monsters who are like throwing their babies out with the trash, we don't have evidence of that. Most towns will have a specific location where babies can be placed. And they can be taken by whomever. 
So whether they're actually left there until they die, which I'm sure happens unfortunately sometimes, and more often, these babies are just taken as, as slaves, right? Or, or to, as servants, or whatever you want to call them. And this is something that is not practiced by either Jewish people or Christians. They are considered to be almost animal-like in their level of breeding. The idea that a good Jewish or Christian family has no sense of birth control and they will have eight kids or 12 kids or 15 kids, they will never expose them. And why do I mention that this is an argument for the spreading of Christianity? Well, because in those early centuries, one of the more successful ways to spread Christianity is many Christians will open orphanages where all they do is collect the babies that are exposed. And instead of enslaving them, they raise them as Christians. My novel argument in the ongoing and never-ending abortion debate would be, wouldn't it be awesome if people wanted to put their money where their mouth was and let's say, you know, let's just have a, the same thing again. Pay any woman who wants to, to like live in luxury for nine months and then we'll take the kid off their hands just like the ancient Roman Christians used to do. Don't see that happening anytime soon. Okay, so let me be clear to you. What I'm going to be sharing with you are the dates as understood by archaeologists, sociologists, anthropologists, and historians. By our best guess, of the four books, the four Gospels, Mark seems to be the oldest. There are older books, which we now consider, quote-unquote, the Apocrypha. That doesn't mean that they're fake or lies necessarily, but they were not accepted once we get into the 300s by the majority of Christians. Matthew and Luke are very closely related <clears throat> to the point where probably the same author is responsible for most of both of them. The Gospel according to John is the last. It is the most interesting in terms of its poetry and symbolism. It's ex Tell you what, I, I am not uh, trained enough to discuss the, the specifics of, of the, the books of the, of the Bible. Luke and the Acts of the Apostles are by the same author, and it seems likely that they were started first. That someone started writing them maybe in the 40s or 50s. But that's just guessing off of the internal evidence within, within the books. In terms of like surviving pieces of paper, Mark is the oldest. And by oldest, I mean dating to about 40 years after the, the death, crucifixion, resurrection, etc. The Gospels, so-called good news, the evangelists, right? This all tells you the importance of the Greek language. Christian scholars now understand that more than anything else, the early Christians are trying to convince Hebrews, Israelites, Jewish people, whatever you want to call them, about the 
on necessity of rebuilding the temple. We have gone beyond the temple. When they crucified Jesus, that was like destroying the temple. And with his resurrection, that's the new temple. It is no accident that all of the trappings of the Christian church of this time are taken exactly one for one from the pre-temple Jewish rites. Now things are confused because the Catholic Church is, is not the only church. But at this time, the church is relatively unified. Each service is called a mass, or if you prefer, a sacrifice, just like the ancient Jews did. The difference is, whom are we sacrificing? Well, we can't sacrifice a sheep or a goat. We're sacrificing Jesus. He sacrificed himself for us, so we are going to play out that sacrifice every time we get together. That sacrifice will be headed by a priest. Why a priest? Because that's who does the sacrifices in the ancient Jewish religion. Many people will point out that this early religion is a religion of slaves. And while that is true, Greek is not only the language of the slaves, it is also the language of education in the Roman Empire. So I don't want you to think that like Christians are 100% oppressed. Because there are many people of, of means, scholars, professors of this time who were also converting to Christianity. What's really important to understand here is probably about a quarter of the New Testament is written by someone who comes after the fact. Paul. St. Paul, if you prefer. The Apostle. But it's interesting to call him an Apostle when he is never someone... He was not there for the Passion. He was not there for the Resurrection. He comes after. And if you were to divide up the New Testament into that stuff written by Paul and that stuff not written by Paul, they do sound like they're talking about two different religions. But one of the ways they agree is this idea of getting away from the temple, getting away from animal sacrifice, and moving towards the importance of just talking to God, just straight up just talking to the air, God will hear you. God will hear what you do in secret. Right? That's something maybe most people don't think of as that special today. That's kind of a big deal. You don't need to sacrifice. So that's something to tell God? Just, just, just tell God. Now, when I said that the early church was more unified... That's largely a result of there just being so few Christians. With the increase in population comes the increase of fighting. And I would argue that that's just a, that's just a function of humanity. Two people or 20 people or 200 people can agree much better than two million people. You get two million people together, oof, no thanks. So, this is a very rough guess of the population of the Christian church after 
the crisis of the, the third century, right? We're aiming for about the year 313. Now what you might remember from my discussion about the crisis of the third century means you should not go looking for a great deal of evidence about Christianity from the 200s because almost no evidence of the 200s survives. It is a very rough time for everyone. The Roman Empire basically ceases to exist. And those few sources that survive from Christians are thrilled, right? Because they think the fall of the Roman Empire is the sign of the coming of Jesus. In the same way that there might be certain Christian segments who are rubbing their hands with glee, thinking, yes, finally, the world governments are going to be all destroyed, and that'll be great because it means Jesus is coming. There's that sense of like a, a sense of joy or glee and expectation in like the colossal collapse of civilization. That was also there in the early Christian church. When people think of Roman Christianity, this is what they think of far too often. St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, called St. Peter's because supposedly this church is built exactly on the site of Peter's martyrdom. Martyrdom, right? This idea that when you are killed for your faith. What's interesting is, this is what we should think of. Because St. Peter's is built long after the destruction of the Roman Empire. The church that had been there before doesn't survive. This is what a Roman Christian church looks like. Edward Gibbon is the author of a book that I doubt any of you have ever read. And in full honesty, I have never read the entirety of it that has affected all of us, even though we've never read it. It has affected all of us because it was one of the most read books at the time of the founding of this country and at the time of the founding of our institutions of higher education and learning. So that the first teachers and the first professors in this country, and not just this country, read his work and understood it as something approaching truth. Now, when I say most important historian, I do not mean most right. I do not mean most accurate. I don't mean most best. Most important. In that original meaning of importance of someone who changes the world, who changes the people around him. And not all change is good, okay? He's not evil. He's not a bad guy. He's no more evil than anybody else around him. He's important. Okay, like, I'm sure all of you can think of some movie star or, or, or musician or like YouTube person or freaking influencer that you think is having a negative effect on some part of our culture that you like. For me, that's Gibbon. And there's nothing I can do about it because he's been dead for longer than he was alive. I, I can't erase him. He is the author of this book, right? History and of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. He takes 20 years of his life 
to write this thing. It is the most anti-Semitic, anti-Catholic, Enlightenment-era thing you can imagine. The Roman Empire, the reason that we hold Rome up as this paragon of logic and virtue owes a lot to this man. I would even argue one of the reasons we think of, especially in the English language, other languages it's more complicated, but in the English language, if you have a movie or a show or a series and it's set in ancient Rome, they don't sound like me. I don't care what show you're talking about. They always have some variety of English accent. And it's great because they'll use like, you know, very high London accent for the elites and some sort of low rural accent for the slaves or the soldiers. There's this very strong sense that the British Empire is built on this Roman model. And so I should say, like, why is his book so immensely influential? Why is it so important? Because it tells its audience what they already believe. The British Empire is the rebirth of the Roman Empire. And for many people living at the time of Edward Gibbon, they are terrified that the British Empire is falling apart, that soon it will collapse. And it will collapse just like the Roman Empire and for the same reasons Namely, people are becoming too religious. That is Gibbon's main thesis. Religion is stupid superstition, and it killed the Roman Empire. So let me make this very clear to you. He could not be more wrong. The British Empire in his lifetime is nothing compared to what comes later. True, the British Empire has now collapsed. It's not because of religion. More than anything, I'd say it's because of colonization and the effects of World War II. But the height of the British Empire is a hundred years after his death. When he is thinking that when he's alive, it's going to fall any minute now. One of the things he is most afraid of is the rise of small Protestant churches, specifically the Methodists, though not only them. And he's convinced that that is going to completely cripple this logic-based empire. So why does it matter what he thinks? Because it changes what everyone thinks about the Roman Empire. He writes this massive history book, and he is not, quote-unquote, a good modern historian. He has very little access to the sources. When he writes about the ancient Roman Empire, really he's writing about what he thinks about it in comparison to where he's living in the moment. So he gives a nice little bullet point list. What kills Rome? Religious intolerance is number one. The promise of an afterlife. He says if you tell people that their good things will happen when they die, They'll become lazy. They won't work hard. All they'll be focused on is what happens after their death. 
He also thinks that the, the miraculous cures promised by the Christians are a major problem in the fall of Rome. It makes no sense because miracle cures have always been around. Whether or not they're true or not, there have always been people promising them. Just as much today as then and as in Gibbon's time. He also thinks, and so austere here might be an unfamiliar word, austere in the sense of strict, austere in the sense of uptight, a prude, right? Because the early Christians, he thinks, hated sex and hated drinking and partying, right? That that is what killed the Roman Empire. It was much better when everybody just had a little bit more fun. He strongly believed that Christians were more likely to be honest and true to each other than to the country they lived in. And again, I, I, there's no evidence for this. If anything, unfortunately, the opposite has been proven to be the case. Christians are terrible at feeling solidarity with Christians they'd never met. For every Christian who says, oh, but my church raised money for some people in Africa. Yeah? Why are those people in Africa so poor? How did that happen? There's this sense that because you can drop a coin in a box. And this is another strange thing. He believed that Christianity was too hierarchical, too ordered. This system of priests and bishops and popes he thought that was absolutely a source of weakness. Sure, maybe it is, but like that comes out of the Roman Empire. This kind of hierarchy is a product of ancient Jewish religion colliding with Roman rule. So if you think that Rome is this, I don't know, paragon of organization, Attacking these Roman-era organizations strikes me as a little strange. Wake up. I can hit the button. I can hit the button. Oh, all right. I guess I hit it too many times. So, sorry, it's a, kind of a wall of text. So, one of the fears on... Roman minds is, again, related to the lack of birth control, or whatever you want to say it, the idea that there are just too many Christians. They very quickly procreate, and they believe in something that we are now would call communism or socialism, right? If you're reading the Acts of the Apostles, Christian communities had no private property. To join the Christian community meant to turn over all of your assets, and share them with every single person in that community. I'm saying that because it's easy for you to see, right? Open up a Bible, go to the Acts of the Apostle, which is our best source on what was life like amongst the early Christians. And you can read Paul tell us, hey, this wealthy family wanted to join the church and we all welcomed them in, we baptized them. And then they refused to turn over their goods, so we killed them. It's in the Bible, right? There's this sense of total lack of personal ownership. 
If you need something, the church will give it to you. If you have something, you should give it to the church. That's kind of terrifying to the Roman Empire, right? If you believe in, like, you know, having scarcity, you can't have rich people without poor people. I say it again for the people in the back. You can't have rich people without poor people. And if you want to be rich, well, who doesn't want to be rich? To the people of Rome, Christianity was a superstitio, which is to say a superstition. Now, now we think of superstition as harmless, right? Like I have lucky socks I wear. I don't walk under a ladder. If something bad happens, maybe I'll say salt and I'll throw it over my shoulder or something. Superstitions to the Romans were not harmless. They were the work of witches. Are you woken up yet? Yes, okay. I would argue that martyrdom is something almost universal in, in, in world cultures, but is often considered to be very specific to Christianity. I'm not really convinced that that's the case. I think all people value someone else sacrificing themselves for the group. But I will say that the Bible, at least the New Testament, makes it very clear. There is nothing better. Right? Whatever horrible person you are, whatever sins you've committed, you could be a monster. But if you find a way to die for your faith, or more importantly, for someone else's faith, that's it. Clean slate. All is forgiven. That is the ultimate redemption. And that's everywhere in our media, right? When people talk about this or that show and how someone has a great character arc, 100% of the time, that character arc, if it is called great, ends in their redemption. Probably their death, probably for someone else. So, were Christians thrown to the lions? This is kind of a big question because if I talk about Christianity in the Roman Empire, martyrdom is a big deal. There's a sense that, well, yeah, the Romans really, really, really hate Christians. It's against the law. Christians are meeting in secret because if they don't, they'll be picked up and like marched to the Colosseum and like set on fire or chopped up into little pieces or fed to the lions or whatever. So, sure, I guarantee you, yes, some Christians were thrown to some lions, but probably not the way you're imagining. I really like this, this piece of art. This is pretty, it's pretty amazing how graphic it can be with just little rocks. That's somebody who is having his face eaten by, a, I guess, a cheetah or something. Yikes. So this is a form of punishment. This is a form of punishment common in the Roman Empire, not only for Christians, called damnatio bestias, right? Basically, you are damned to be eaten by beasts. And it's not specific. It could be dogs. Very often it was dogs. That's pretty awful too. Uh, if, if you have more money and you want a little bit of a show, it'll be a rare, exciting beast. You'll be eaten by hippopotami. You'll be trampled by giraffes. You'll be stopped to death by elephants. You'll be eaten by a lion. This aspect of the Roman Empire is probably one of the most enduring cultural legacies today. 
even today, we consider judgment and the legal system as a source of entertainment and sort of like how to teach people lessons. That is not universal in the world. It's not. Many cultures consider judgment to be a private affair that should never be publicized, that to do so is uncouth, uncultured. The Romans thought the opposite. If a judgment happens behind closed doors, it's not a judgment. Even if it doesn't end in death, okay? Not all judgment ends in death. But it should be public. It should be fun. It should teach a story or a lesson. And so when you see someone thrown to the wolves or the dogs or the cheetah, there is someone else off here who's the MC holding the Roman equivalent of a microphone, whatever, shouting, explaining what's happening and why. I would argue that one of the most interesting changes in our legal system that's happened probably in the last 100, oh, 150 years, we have slowly moved away from public executions. Public executions have been a mainstay of Western culture from the Roman Empire almost till today. The last public execution in this area, I mean like Roanoke, happened less than 100 years ago. I don't mean lynching. Like lynching is bad. I mean public execution where there is a jury and a trial and a judge who says they should die by hanging until dead and we will build a gallows in the center of town and everyone should come and watch. Lynching is bad enough. But the idea where like, it's under the, 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 the flag of the law, under the color of law, we are going to hang people in public or shoot them or stone them to death. It's interesting to me that this has changed. Now we consider execution as something that happens behind closed doors. You know, you go to a prison. If you see an execution, it's because you either work there or sadly you were somehow personally connected to the crime. So Tacitus is a historian who lives right around the time of Christ. And he writes about the persecutions of the Christians. He's our main source on them. He's not Christian, but he does think that the empire is being too harsh on them, but it is very specific. Why are they being persecuted? Because the emperor, Nero, blames them for a fire. A handful of Christians are pulled into the equivalent of the police department. They are tortured until they give up the names of other Christians. Those Christians are tortured until they name the other Christians. It's hard to know exactly how many of these Roman Christians are wiped out by this. But essentially, they're all lined up and sentenced to death in different ways, mostly to be burned alive, some of them to be thrown to the animals. And I'll remind you, these Christians, they're like everyone else. Some of them are rich, some of them are poor. They're all living in Rome. These are not people from Jerusalem. These are not people from Syria. These are people from the city of Rome. 
If we're reading Tacitus, quote, covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs or were nailed to crosses or doomed to the flames and burnt to serve, and the word he uses here is actually torch. Basically, the city is always lit by torches at night, and during these weeks, they take the torches down, put up Christians instead, and let them light the streets. Pretty awesome, or awful, I would say. But I will make this clear. He is not talking about they are being killed because they are Christians. They're being killed because Nero thinks they set the city on fire. I'll remind you, the only source we have on this is Tacitus. Do you remember what I told you? If all we have is one story, it's like we have no stories. Yeah, I say all of this is a problem. Modern historians now, they don't really consider this solid history because if thousands of people are being put on stakes and burned every night, I would expect to hear about it from more than one source. That's kind of big news, don't you think? That's kind of a big story. No one mentions this. We have other people writing at the same time and they neglect to mention, remember that time for like that month when Nero just like used people instead of, yeah, it's a problem. But man, is it a great story. Wake up, wake up. So again, I'll remind you, all punishment was entertainment. So each one of these punishments is related to a specific story. We throw you to the dogs because we all know the story of Actaeon, the great hunter who was eaten by his own dogs. I don't know the story. You don't know the story. The Romans knew the story. Their punishments are specifically to remind people of stories that they know. But the fire of Rome and the punishment of the Christians receives hundreds of pages by Gibbon. This is where I say again, you've never read Gibbon. You are affected by it. Because we have this sense of Christianity being a persecuted religion. Because Gibbon says this stuff happened all the time. Again, this painting is painted after someone read Gibbon. Make this very clear. Look at the date. Someone read Gibbon, and they're like, oh man, what a cool story. What an amazing scene. Can you imagine it? And in their mind's eye, they painted this scene. If you think Tacitus should be a convincing source, I'll remind you, he was eight years old when this happened. My oldest daughter is eight years old. If in a thousand years, she is our only source on what like the first four years of, well, the last four years of Trump's presidency was like, that's not gonna be the best source. She's only eight, you know? I don't even think she knows the president's first name. So Tacitus was eight when this city burned down. He tells us, he tells us, nothing else tells us, he tells us two thirds of the city burned down. He tells us the city burned for two weeks. And he tells us Nero blamed the Christians. He doesn't know why. He doesn't know what evidence was collected. But this is a story that has been told over and over again since given. Like here they are, tie the Christians up. Here's Nero sitting on his throne, waiting to give the orders to, uh, to light him up. I'm not saying that, that, that I know this didn't happen. 
I'm saying this is a great example of a story like so much in the news, so much in your own life. People are not going to stop and wait for the evidence. They're not going to be bothered to like, can you prove that this happened? Like, no, no, that's like, I'm sure it did, right? Because they all hated the Christians. Why do you think that? How do you know that? What is the evidence for this? Now, this is the part where I explain that the, the Christian church itself collects some evidence from this time. Unfortunately, most of the evidence in the church itself, if it dates from this time, it's wholly religious in nature. Actual histories of the persecution are not written until centuries after the fact. So we don't really have eyewitness accounts of mass-level persecution of the Christians. But we do have really good accounts of the persecution of other people by the Christians. And that's the story that we don't teach our children. We don't teach them, hey, there used to be a time when like, the Roman Empire was this amazing mixture where there were Jews and Manichaeans and pagans and Zoroastrians and Christians and yeah, they all, I mean, maybe they didn't like each other, but they lived side by side. You get to the year 500, uh-uh, no. Nope, nope, nope. It's Christian only. And if you're not Christian, you're a suspect and probably you should leave. So, there's little evidence that the sheer act of being a Christian, quote unquote, was a crime. If Nero really did punish these people, he did it because they burned Rome. Not that, not that they did it necessarily, but that was why. The fact that they were Christian was secondary to the fact that two-thirds of the city had been destroyed. And he wanted to blame someone. Tacitus is really not a good source. I mean, he's, I'm sure he's a great guy, whatever. But he doesn't really know what a Christian is. I should point that out, right? He's not really clear. To him, Jews are basically Greeks who are from Africa. Okay. I mean, that's an interesting idea. No one else says that. I think he just doesn't know what he's talking about. And the Jews are basically Egyptians who hate all gods. Sure, okay. I mean, again, like, no one thinks that Tacitus is a good source on religion. But it does show you that someone living in the first century in Rome can have no idea what a Christian or a Jewish person is. He's living in the center of this empire. He's living during the time when Rome conquers Jerusalem, tears down the temple. And even he is just like, yeah, I don't know. If you think that's strange, I think if we picked the random American off the street and said, what religion do they practice in Iraq or Afghanistan? And can you tell me some true things about it? I'm not convinced that the average American would do that well. And Tacitus is great because he's one of the big sources he has on, on how horrible Jews especially are because they don't practice infanticide. How disgusting. They breed like animals. They're no better than a dog in heat. Again, like that's an interesting thing for a modern person to read and be like, wow, did the ancient
ancient people really just kill babies all the time? I don't think so. All right. I think that is enough fun for one for one day.